Hello everybody and welcome back, or maybe welcome for the first time, to What Would The Smart Party Do? I'm Gaz, one of your genial hosts, and with me as usual is my good friend Baz. How's it going, Baz? It's going well. Yeah, it's not my first time. Feels like it though. You always make it feel like the first time. I always make you feel like a virgin, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where this is going. Quick, let's get some extra guests Retreat. In. Retreat. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't come to us for sensibility. <laughs> this is entirely on you guys. So unfortunately, all we've got for support are the guys from Steamforge Games. First of all, we have the creative director, shall I call you, Matt? Uh, you can call me what you like. Everyone does. Yes, I am creative director at Steamforge, Matt. You may have heard me on such podcasts as What Would The Smart Party Do? This is going well. I like this. Self, <laughs> self-promotion already. And uh, one of the lead designers and writers, Rich August. How are you doing, Rich? Hey, I'm good. Good to be back. My, sec- my second appearance, I think. Right. Wow. Uh, Richard Orcus, also known as friend of Becca Scott. Friend of Becca oh, Scott. Oh, really? Yeah, we're oh, good mates. Yeah. She made my uh, Facebook profile photo, so I assume that means we're besties now. That's what I've been <laughs> telling everybody. everybody anyway. I imagine, yeah, you're getting married soon or something. Yeah. So, yeah, invite us to the wedding and get, get her on the podcast. Is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, it won't be a problem. Yeah. As soon as she gets on the podcast, you're not coming anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell him that. Don't say that loud. Last in, first out, right? Why is this... <laughs> It's the only reason you've asked me on my Becca Scott contacts. You brought it up. <laughs> Name dropping. One of the reasons, one of the many wonderful many reasons why we have you guys on, uh, is because of the the fan favourite Dark Souls and the new RPG, which everybody, but everybody's talking about on the Twitterverse and online <laughs> generally. Oh God! So let's <laughs> let's lead in with a question of burning on everybody's lips: is why D and D? Oh, you, do nice. you want to take this first, Matt, or shall I? I do, because that's a. I think uh, Gaz has been deliberately provocative there. That's a simple question. It's a simple question, and I think what he's done is he's left me an opening, um, which is to, of course, correct him. But D&D doesn't necessarily equate to 5e, and 5e doesn't necessarily equate to D&D. And one of the things that Richard and I discovered through the early process of designing Dark Souls, and actually... Both, both, you know, you Gaz and you Baz, we we've chatted quite a long, and you know, into the night on a Saturday night, drinking lots of whiskey, talking yeah. about what can and can't be done. And the more Rich and I really kind of nutted out the things that we wanted to do with this game to really capture that Dark Souls experience, the more we realised that we could just do it with the framework that D and D, the sorry, that Five E provides which would basically allow us to use that kind of control system that people are familiar with. So it's a bit like making a video game. We're going to make a first-person shooter. Like, no one in the world would ever go, oh, do you know what, I'll be innovative and I'll put the, the movement on the right thumbstick. It's always on the left thumbstick. The trick, you know, the shoot is always on the right, you know, on R, R1 or whatever the trigger is. There's a reason why the uh, Microsoft controller and the, and the Sony controller and, the, you know, the Nintendo controller all pretty much are the same four buttons on the right, some triggers and a squiggly little thing on the left. It just is a familiar pattern that people are used to knowing how how to use and how to play. And when we're doing um, uh, something like Dark Souls, using that as a bedrock to base the game changes that we wanted to make meant that we could make more significant changes knowing that the familiarity of how the system worked remained unchanged. So it's, it comes down to a lot of complexity points. I don't know if you want to add anything on that, Richard. 
I think I I just say I mean Dark Souls is a game about exploring places and killing things, and that is that is D and D's core DNA. That's what it's a game about. You know, for most of its most of the critiques about D and D come down to that it's it's not a particularly good role playing game in some ways. You know, it doesn't incentivize player interaction or, or talking to people in the same way that it does hitting them with a sword. Well, guess what? Dark Souls doesn't either. You don't even have a voice. You don't really get to choose, you know, you, the choices you make as a player are about how you approach battles, what route you take, you know, whether you search diligently for all the secret doors or whether you just charge in. Those, those are the core elements of a D&D game in, in many ways. So I, I think it makes perfect sense both in terms of, you know, commercial, because there is there is a commercial aspect to making games, and in term, and thematically. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we hacked the shit out of it because we didn't want to make just, a, you know, a, a easy port over. We wanted to make a game that really took 5e and did something interesting with it, we hope. But I, I still think that, that the original decision was a, was a solid one. Can you understand why this is always the first question that you get asked? Because, Richard, especially you've been on a million podcasts before us. Not that that's gone unnoticed. And I'm sure this question comes up all the time. But have you been maybe surprised or were you expecting this level of discourse about this particular point? Yeah, I think I think you'd have to be naive in in the in the Twitter era uh, not to expect a lot of people to to have ideas about it and and pretty strong thoughts. I I do think you know people might have waited a little bit maybe. What like what like reading it maybe. I mean I I mean I know that's that's a a lot to ask in this day and age, but maybe you know maybe just until we disclosed some of the the mechanical changes we'd made because there was a there was a noticeable thing i think in the, in the in the discourse where it started as why are they using 5e they're not going to do anything to this game it's just going to be you know ported over and they'll just you know change the maps in and that'll be it and then then it became now they're making too many changes to it is this even 5e and it was it was it was very strange and i think there's two things there one you know 5e gets a lot of brick bats because it's the biggest system and it's the only one genuinely owned by a, a corporate entity you know wizards of the coast is part of hasbro it's an enormous you know creaking corporate giant and then secondly i don't think people really care i think they they no that's nuts that's probably not fair i think there is a lot of clicks to be gained in attacking dnd kind of irrespective of, of the argument underpinning it. Okay, fair enough. Let's dig into some of those changes that you've been talking about, some of the differences. Now, when we talked to Mike Mills, one of the designers for an iteration of D&D, &D, we, we asked him what a hit point was. And then I, I was horrified, aghast, looking into Dark Souls, that there's, there's no hit points. There's a thing called position. What's that all about? Uh, so position is, is a way... It serves many purposes for us in, in Dark Souls. And one of the things we heard as feedback from the Dark Souls board game that we developed was the disconnect that people felt between uh, using uh, dice as a resolution system where Dark Souls is ostensibly a skill-based experience or a skill-based game, uh, talking about the video game. So what we wanted to recognise is, is how can we actually emulate that kind of skill-based feeling but still retain a game. You have, you know, you have to have a game, and, and certainly in a tabletop game, it's, it's, you know, tabletop games without dice feel very different. You know, so we knew we had to have dice, um, but we wanted to give the players plenty of ways of mitigating it, 
but it had to be a, a strategic and tactical decision. So, so that's where position really sort of started coming about. And again, Baz, we we chatted about this several times, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. About how can you represent hit point? Hit points for me, I've always struggled with. Where you know, you, you've got a, a, an eighth level warrior, you got sixty odd hit points, and a, and an orc hits you with an axe, and it rolls a twelve, like the biggest roll that you can possibly do, and, and it's barely a scratch, you know. And 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 then the GM describes and. And I'm, I'm GMing, and I'm like, how, do, how the hell do I describe an orc hitting with every single bit of muscle it's got behind it, but I know it's done, you know, less than, uh, you know, 10% of, of that player's hit points. It's not a meaty whack and blood splurting all over the place. It's like, if this was a movie, that, that axe has just dodged past and he's just hovered out of the way, but maybe he's getting a little bit slower and then, you know, it rolls around to that sort of final blow. So... I was already in that kind of abstract space for like what the hit points actually represent. It's not the amount of blood on the floor. It must be something to do with how quick you are, how um, how how combat aware you are, how how you're able to react and deal with you know the adversities of what happens in combat. And so that's where we really started playing around with this kind of concept of it's a mixture of stamina and health. It's also a, a, an abstraction of your relative positioning. So obviously in D and D you're you're in five foot squares, but when you're fighting you're not precisely five feet away from each other. You're you're kind of rolling in and out. One of the skills in a combat game is knowing your attack distances as well as the attack vectors in Dark Souls. So if you know that when a guy swings in that way, you need to roll the other way, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're trying to sort of abstract that feeling of of player control, players' ability to mitigate and manage their roles, players feeling like they're in control of the decisions that affect their characters, but also still retaining that very dangerous feel that Dark Souls have, which is if you go in wildly hacking away, you know, and without care for your defense or care for, you know, how you're actually going to survive through the next 10 seconds of the fight, you're going to get killed. And that's it. You know, that's Dark Souls. You have to be patient. You have to fight carefully and and cleverly. So that's really where the positioning system started. Uh, A lot of, you know, so much of Dark Souls is, it's in that the management of both your health and your stamina and making sure, you know, that you don't overcommit with your first attack or something and leave yourself wild, wide open for a, a riposte. And yeah, position was an attempt to kind of combine both health and stamina into a, into a single resource, which, you know, that, as Matt says, that would become the, the fulcrum around which your kind of tactical and strategical uh, approach to fights would be based and also, it meant we could cap health yeah. or position, you know, so that you didn't... So basically, traps were still deadly. <laughs> because, you know, once you reach kind of fourth level, who gives a toss about a trap? You either have to go the Grimtooth's trap method, where they're insane, and, you know, if you trigger it and miss it, it can kill, you know, an entire party, or, they just, or they're just irrelevant. And that never... That's just not what happens in Dark Souls. Yeah. You never become invulnerable. Yeah, it also opens up you know us basically the way the position works in in the dark souls rpg is your position at the beginning of the fight is unknown you have a fixed amount that you start with if you're previously wounded then that fixed position that your starting position is obviously lower but you with the minute the combat starts on your turn when you act you get like an adrenal surge or however you want to describe it you get some temporary uh, position so so your starting level if you like in every fight is not actually clear cut. You might just whiff and roll a one. 
you know, and where you thought you were going in pretty strong and in control, actually, oh God, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm way behind the curve. And it's that sort of unease because I, you know, we've all played D and D and and similar games where it's just such a known entity. Like we've played so much of these games, you know, that, that it's almost like a solved situation. You go in and go, okay, you can almost math it out. Yeah. I know what four orcs do. I know what the party's capable of doing. This is going to end up with X result, you know, and you could probably write it down, put it in an envelope and then open it up at the end of the fight and not be a million miles away. But if you can kind of RNG a little bit of that beginning, so it's a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of unknown, a little bit of, oh God, you know, uh, we're in a sticky spot. And then I think um, the idea that, uh, that I think Richard layered on top of that was was that only triggers at the beginning of your activation. Suddenly, surprise round is really important. And one of the things that Dark Souls does really well is, is jump scares and, and, and things looming out of the shadows and absolutely rinsing you before you've had a chance to react to it and, and kind of capturing that feel of, you know, if, if, if you whiff on your initiative, you're in a dangerous spot. And that's one of the things I've really enjoyed seeing in all the streams and, and certainly the games that we've played, you know, through testing this is, is it just creates such a different feeling game to, ev to other 5e games. I can't think of a different game that uses the 5e core engine that feels as dangerous as, as Dark Souls does. And it and it just really changes the, you know, the experience like dramatically. So there's plenty of ways for this position to go down. And it might it might start lower than you want it to at the beginning as well. So how does the um how does the healing cycle fit in? Because your standard D and D on top of 5e, obviously, is yeah, it's quite difficult to die in D and D. Uh, in your 5e version, I presume that can't be the case for Dark Souls. No, it definitely isn't. So basically, at the end of every fight, you either return to your base position, if you are still, by some miracle, above that with your kind of, you know, your, your boosted temporary position mm. dice for the fight. If your position is now lower than your base position, you remain at that. You have an Estus flask with three drafts in. That can only be refilled at a bonfire and you can only rest and recuperate at a bonfire it's the only place you can slow rest there are also no death saves once you hit zero you're done there are healing spells as there are in the game but they are you know they are limited you have a certain number of casts um once they're done they're done again you can't recharge those until you're at a, at a bonfire so a lot of that is on the gm it depends on how deadly you want to make it because obviously how often you allocate bonfires to a particular space is up to you. You could you could make this a relatively easy game if you wanted. That's to mm -hmm. say, if you were a very generous GM and you just want to focus on stories, that's what you can do. You know, I don't we don't want to make it out like you can only play this game in this one way. It's designed to be more for, there is an easy mode in there. I'm sorry, Dark Souls players out there if you're listening. Um and I, I it is in the GM's chapter. It's not the core it's not the default assumptions of the game, but you can you can tweak it. But basically, it's designed to be nasty. And if you if you wanted to wipe your players out over and over again, you pretty much could. There's a it's a, it's quite a high trust game in that in that regard. There's a couple of interesting things to kind of like pounce on with that. There's those because it's a high mortality style game, and we've built systems that make death okay. It actually frees you up a little bit as a GM. You know, we've all done it where you might have kind of, you know, GM fiat behind the screen or or kind of like throw a retcon in because you don't want it to derail the session. 
you don't want a character that's been around you know and an, an intrinsic part of the story to just suddenly die because of a random dice roll but actually if the game is built around that and and it adds to the story and it adds to the evolutionary character because when you die your character evolves and changes not always for the better in fact very rarely for the better <laughs> kind of bits fall off and things like that then it feels it's almost part of the character progression but i think just to really circle back to, to position just to sort of uh, i'm conscious that we've talked about all the ways that you basically reliant on position to kind of not die we we didn't we tempt you with with ways of spending position to in, improve your life so in dragging yourself closer to death i.e spending position you can modify dice rolls so this is where the the reflection of the skill based system comes in so let's say you're trying to hit a hollow hollow's ac let's say is, is 12 you know he's got a wooden shield and a bit of ragged chain mail on him um, and you roll a net 10 you could spend two points of position to add to your dice roll in order to change change that miss into a hit so it's you kind of slightly extending you getting in a little bit closer you exposing yourself in a small way similarly you can spend position to uh, perform minor re you know uh, readjustments of your movement how many times have we played dnd &D? And you've kind of gone, oh, can't you square? Did, 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 did. Oh, I'm five foot short. Okay, I get to do bugger all this turn. Well, with this, you can spend position to do that extra Dark Souls roll and roll yourself in. And that's just two of many different ways that we tempt you as designers to, to get players to want to spend their position, knowing they're accelerating themselves towards their ultimate demise. Pretty much every weapon has a, in fact, every weapon has a position spend to you know to reflect the kind of skills that the weapons give you most abilities have are either triggered by your spending position or are improved in some way most spells have little additional things you know you can spend an additional point in order to uh, a point of position in order to do an extra two damage and you know is that worth the deal it's kind of this kind of constant devil's faustian pact you're being asked to make and working out whether it's good value so you're you're always thinking i think in two or three different ways as a player with that position you know you're thinking both kind of on the plain tactical level of dnd &D combat am i in the right place can i you know is my weapon going to be useful here how do i support my team then you're also having to think how am i marshalling my resources am i doing this correctly is it worth blowing a big load of position early to do a load of damage and then hanging back and letting everybody else do things i think it just changes up roles and it forces people to think from a fresh perspective about D&D uh, &D combat. And you, you mentioned there that you might die. There's no death saves, but when you die, you just wake up next to a bonfire, right? It's not the end as it is in other D&D &D games. No, but that's still not a good thing. You have to succeed. So, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, there's in Dark Souls, there is hollowing. As you die, you can lose your humanity. And uh, I kind of... I thought that was really cool and something which was worth keeping in the game simply because I think one of the, you know, when you're adapting IP for a TTRPG, you kind of want to find the areas where you can, you can offer something new. And I think character was one of the key areas of that for Dark Souls. Who are you? Why are you chosen for this task? What makes, you know, what keeps you going when you keep dying and wake up the bonfire? What, what, makes you get up why not just wait there you know sit there and wait for the end which you can't do in the game you have to get up whereas in a ttrpg we all know the kind of players who go no what's my motivation for doing this well you have to pick one at the start to get around that but 
that then feeds into the death thing where you're losing parts of yourself. So whenever you die and wake up next to a bonfire, you have to succeed on a wisdom save. And if you don't, you roll on the hollowing table. You lose a part of yourself. And most of those results are pretty horrible. There are a couple of, one or two decent ones, I think, where, you know, you might even get a, a bonus to your attributes. Most of them are losing bits or parts of yourself. Some of them are role-playing ones. There's a kind of a, a bit of a smorgasbord, really, of, of different results, which change again how you relate to your character and then that's going to translate into how you relate to the rest of the game you also um drop all the souls that you've collected up yeah until that you also point. do that yeah. so uh, much like the video game but in in 5e parlance uh this isn't a, a milestone xp it's a you earn xp as you go along if you then rest at a bonfire you can almost bank that xp spend it to kind of take yourself to like the next level if you've got enough, if not, you're carrying that risk all the way through. And if you die, those souls all go. So there is a there is a keenly felt loss that happens when you die. But, you know, that's Dark Souls, really. And, and you know, the feeling of loss kind of pervades the game, really. It's just one of the like the core themes is, is that that loss of humanity. And we're reflecting in the loss of XP. Which in some ways worse. <laughs> yeah, which in yeah. many ways yeah. is worse. <laughs> Yeah, losing your yeah, you know it's kind of it's kind of like we brought level drain back, almost. <laughs> Save or die. Yeah, <laughs> it's more that kind of. Have you seen that, have you seen that psychological um, study where they've proven that if like if I gave you twenty quid and then uh, got you to gamble when you lost, you would act as if that twenty quid was yours in the first place. You wouldn't actually go, oh, okay, <laughs> I've not lost anything. You'd be like, no, I'm down twenty quid even though the 20 quid in the first place was free. So it's that kind of sense of loss that, that you know, you get XP or you get souls for killing, you know, monsters and defeating traps and all that kind of stuff, you, you know, the usual way. And then you die and you and then you've lost it. You're like, oh, you feel it twice as bad. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really good fun. It's like, it's a, it feels like an event when someone dies in the game. And it's a good event, even though, almost all of the outcomes are pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like those old school video games I used to play. Perhaps, perhaps the kids listening won't understand, but back when computers didn't have much memory, if you died, you had to like redo a level in its entirety, and that was yeah. just... That drained your soul. Lost so, many, so many weeks and years to that. Oh, I don't want to sound too old about it. I mean, I'm smashing like the hell out of Elden Ring at the moment and loving it, but it is... It's such a refreshing change to go back to a game that if you die, it's unapologetic. You've just got to do that bit again. And you and it's hard and tricky. And every time you get just an inch further or a little bit further, or you learn one more thing about what's going on and then you defeat it. I mean, you know, games like that just teach you grit and tenacity and, and, and that sense of achievement when you do actually get past it is just phenomenal. And I think what it does is it really opens up I was chatting to um, Stephen Lumpkin over at uh, uh, Guerrilla Games. He's, you know, does a huge amount of uh, D&D streaming and, and commentary. He's one of the guys who sort of did like the Western Marches sort of stuff. And he was telling me about a game that he, he was running where it was very Dark, Dark Souls-esque. And he said the players absolutely loved just getting, you know, walking into a room and like a massive demon just coming out. And they're like, oh, we're only third level. You know, in D&D, it's like, how do you how do you kind of rationalize that in D D? You know, you can't you just can't put that there. But in Dark Souls, you can just go, 
and everyone's like oh god let's not go in that room again as they reappear on the bonfire kind of you know with their new new scars and they but what Stephen was saying to me is is what he found was players would kind of go oh cool mark it on the map right we're going to go back to that guy when we're ready to deal with them now we're going to work our way around and explore the rest of the location and the rest of the castle. Oh, God, we found the demon slaying sword. Ooh, should we try it? Oh, no, no. Well, let's go and like just power up a little bit more. Oh, we found this other thing. And he's just said these stories just sort of like progressed and then and then went on hold. But then they, they, they were still current. And there were always options for players to kind of go back to whenever they wanted. And it sounded, you know... Way he described it sounded really exciting. It's, it's something we've tried to kind of capture in the Dark Souls RPG yeah. as well. That sort of sense of you, 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 you got to look after yourself, and and just because it's there doesn't mean it's balanced for you. And and there's ways around these things, and there's there's usually kind of shortcuts that you can bypass these things, and there's huge rewards if you take the risk of taking these things on. So you know, it's it's real player agency stuff. And I think that kind of comes back to why D&D is a good system for it. 5e still has the original D&D's DNA baked into it. And that game was all about, you know, learning how to approach a dungeon. You know, you take your 10 foot pole and you test all the flagstones and you move forward carefully and you inch forward. And if you possibly can, you know, you send followers and retainers into the room so you don't have to deal with the orcs, you know, because you can, you're, you're squishy, you can die. And it's really not, so we kind of, returned a bit of that original old school, you know, old school Renaissance jeopardy, or we tried to, to, to 5e D&D, because it's, you know, it's a pretty solid system. And we put a bit of lethality back in it. It also helps that uh, both Richard and I absolutely love uh, DCC funnels. Yes. It's like, <laughs> you know, at any point in time, if anyone says, let's do a one shot, let's just do a funnel. It's like, yeah, let's do it. Because it's just brilliant fun and it's because it's different from your normal D D stuff so yeah and matt, and matt you you gm for me and we do a couple of D D campaigns and we always we always hate it i think we always hate it we don't say it out loud but we always hate it when uh when the party makes a decision to go back to town or to camp or to wherever it doesn't feel right does it you kind of have to do it because you know, your modern D D sort of teaches you to be a bit risk averse in some ways doesn't it and I, but I love I love games that lean into the horror, the the exploration, the, the risk, the chance you might die. And by adding in that that basically that push your luck mechanic that you've done with Dark Souls, you're kind of making it feel like it's probably more effective to just get yourself killed than it is to venture back to the tavern, rest up, and then do the long march yeah. back again. Yeah. So let's push on. Let's play more. There might be a bonfire just around the corner. Exactly. Why, why don't we go all the way back through. Yeah. I think what's interesting about that is. Um, and we've all experienced this is it's where simulationism or realism kind of trumps like the actual game mechanic because really when you're playing dnd you don't want people taking a short rest after every single fight no. you don't want to take a long rest every like couple of hours or so because they just so that you know but the players want to because they want to be walking around with a full arsenal of, of spells and, and hit points and, and special effects so uh, you've got choices as a gm and none of them are good do you just say you can't have a long rest? Because then the, play, the minute you say that to players is the minute that they will put their very, very smart, clever minds to finding reasons to have a long rest. Mm-hmm. You know, do you hard commit to interrupting their long rest? Well, sure, you can do that once every now and then, but 
you turn into a bit of a dick if you do that every time they have a long rest. So you can't, that's kind of not on the table really as a, as a solve. So you, you, you almost sort of like painted into the corner of going, oh yeah, sure. If you want a long rest, you want a long rest. I mean, the way I deal with it as uh, well, as all of you know, is mm. I just make all my encounters really overpowered. So if you're going to long rest, then so are my monsters, you know, and every single thing is going to be deadly or more. This kind of weird sort of arms race is a zero sum at the end of the day. But if, if, if you take this kind of concept and root it in the world, so the, the, the simulationism is actually hung off of, a, of, of an in-world mechanic. You cannot rest unless it's out of bonfire. If you rest out of bonfire, all the monsters that you killed come back, right? If you, if you die, then you lose all your stuff. There is no if, buts, or maybes. It's literally turning everything into a very, very clear binary choice. Do we rest, i.e. go all the way back? Or do we press on, even though we're not fully like tooled up at this moment in time? And I think that's quite freeing for players as well. It's very refreshing. And I think if anything, as players and GMs, we we like being pleasantly surprised by things that are new and, and different and, and and exciting as a result of that. So I do think that's quite a a, um, uh, a really nice benefit of 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 really like leaning into like that bonfire system. Can you win Dark Souls then? Can you win anything? I mean, does I mean even in the original games, you you, you finish them, you complete them, but I don't I don't know whether you win because you know that the actual the terms of your victory are so ambiguous. You know, all right. So in the first one, okay, you either you either rekindle the flame, and you you kind of you know perpetuate this dying world's dying, or you end the flame and plunge everything into darkness. You know, in in the third one, okay, you've linked the flame. The fires are lit. You defeat the Lords of Cinder, but what what does that actually mean? Because it doesn't reverse the curse of undeath. You're not you're not restoring humanity and goodness to the world. You you, you may be you may be you know fester a, a tiny tiny bit of hope. It's like for for want of a better term, it's like it's like the end of Revenge of the Sith, where the emperor the emperor's won everything's shit, but Luke Skywalker is alive. That's mm. that's kind of on only even without you know. Even without that level of hope, I'd say in Dark Souls, it's a it's a bleak game. So you can you can complete an adventure, you can complete a campaign. You might even you know convince yourself you've you've won in in some kind of arbitrary sense. But no, I don't think you ever. You you're never going to be a hero. You're never going to be mm. victorious. I quite like the Hollywood trope of you know at the end of most action movies, it's generally a load of ambulances and police cars turn up. They've got those kind of like metallic blankets that they put around like London Marathon <laughs> runners and there's always a bit where like Bruce Willis or or insert another actor and there's people just clapping him as he's obviously just done something really manly I quite like the idea of playing a Dark Souls game where maybe that is an ending <laughs> <laughs> just a load of hollows just clapping as you're walking along with this new silver shield over your shoulders but no it uh, I mean do you ever win D&D do you ever win Call of Cthulhu well, uh, no, because you know a, a combat in a traditional D and D game, a combat is is not massively something to celebrate when you come out the other end intact, because you win ninety nine point nine percent of them. Yeah. Otherwise, your game is at an end, unless unless you're talking old school, which is a different kind of flavour of beast entirely. But I know that the people who play Dark Souls video game, they will chip away at this stuff, and when they get past that boss. They've sunk some hours into it, sunk some skill into it. They got good. And it's high fives all round when they get past it. And if you get that feeling out of a 5e engine, 
which I think you can with what you've done, I think it's a, a really, really strong take, then that's something you don't get in D&D. I don't celebrate when I beat the Cobalts at any level. No. It's it's one of those where, you know, um, a couple of years ago, I, I, I went and spoke to someone like, you know, sort of some CBT therapy, like, and and one of the things that we kind of worked on was um, was that fixation on the end goal. And I kind of, I'd lost the ability to enjoy the, the 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 experience the journey you know and 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 as the guy sort of said to me he said you've got to realize you spend most of your time on the journey and a, and a microsecond at the actual bit where you've achieved the thing you wanted to so if that's all you achieve no wonder you don't feel as happy as you feel you should do so it kind of lit a light bulb in my head but it's very kind of role play isn't it it's like mm. fixated on that kind of big final thing but you just got you've got to enjoy the moments as you go through and like you say you know, you play D and D because it's all balanced. Because everyone knows what the characters are. It's almost as if those bits aren't enjoyable, just by almost by design. Mm. You know, because no one feels like your characters changed at all, other than leveling up every now and then. You just get another doodad, but then the monsters all get tougher as well. Whereas if we can kind of make it that it's dangerous, it's 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 a challenge, and and you genuinely have a reason to celebrate every single combat interaction every single trap that you've got past every single new shortcut that you've discovered so you don't have to go in that room with a demon anymore well then in a way you're learning to enjoy the journey because that's mm. the whole purpose of dark souls it's not the end it's it's the journey that you go through as a player um that that's i, I just think i think it's why dark souls is so popular as i think it just really subtly teaches you about life in a way like it, you know a risk of getting really philosophical about a video game but it's it's such a deeply penetrated philosophy and in, in the whole series of the games that from software make and it just teaches you to enjoy what you're doing not what you've actually achieved it it doesn't care what you've achieved it means nothing to it because yeah, it feels a little bit like like strictly or at disney movie something it's the friends you make along the way and the, the journey <laughs> you've been on and what you've learned about yourself I think. dark souls is a pixar film but with with grimdark <laughs> with grimdark trappings pixar bitching <laughs> <laughs> but, but talking of old school revivals and things like that i know and some some of our listeners will be delighted to find that encumbrance is back hey <laughs> hang on hey. what what's back <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a very simple computer gamey encumbrance uh system but so so much of the game is predicated on it's not it's not about subclasses basically you know 5e 5e's options for for uh, individualizing your character are all based on which subclass you take and you know unearthed arcana is always chucking new ones in and there's new ones in different books and that's where you you make your character your own you know you get different options well Dark Souls doesn't really have anything equivalent to that. So while each class has, you know, a fully built roster of different features you get as you level up, the individualizing is in terms of equipment. And Dark Souls doesn't have weapon proficiencies. You can wear anything. You can use anything. Now, obviously, if you're pyromancer and your weapon isn't the pyromancer's glove, you can't use pyromancies. But essentially, we wanted to. I wanted to achieve the similar thing. So rather than every weapon, all broadswords are the same as they are in 5e. In here, every single broadsword is a different weapon. It does, you know, it might have similar attributes, but it has a uniquely tweaked special rule. And 
all of these can be, you know, combined to, to give you the, the loadout you want. So, you know, if you're fighting the Nameless King, for instance, who has a, a Storm Drake that does a hell of a lot of lightning damage, you're going to want the shield that gives you resistance against lightning damage. I can't remember which one it is, but there is one. And you can, you know, you can, you can tailor your, your costume, your armors, sets, and weapons to defeat the foes you're up against. So that means you have to, one, learn about the enemies, but two, be carrying the right stuff. And that's no fun if you can carry everything. You need to be making sure you're maximizing the slots you've got because some armor takes up two or three slots where you see you can't carry around loads of that. Some shields take up two slots, et cetera, et cetera. You, so you've got, I think, 15 slots and then the five active slots that you're, you're actually wearing. So you have to be thoughtful. You have to plan ahead. And it pays, I guess it pays dividends to remember where you dumped your, you know, the shield you decided not to take on with you when you come up against a monster where that would be perfect. I've never seen a game with so many shields. And I used to play Rollmaster. This, <laughs> your equipment chapter is redonkulous, but it's really cool. It's nearly killed me, <laughs> but it was worth it. <laughs> it's, it's every weapon, armor, shield, everything that's, that's been in Dark Souls. In, in, only in Dark Souls 3, because I, I, I'm halfway tempted to do Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 2 as well. <laughs> it didn't break you enough, is all I can no, say. Well, you know me, I'm a masochist. If there's, now, now I just think of it as a challenge. It's just a new Everest. <laughs> You're not allowed any new shields until you can remember the one that was just like... <laughs> this, this is uh, mine and Richard's. How do I motivate Richard? I just imagine saying, well, if you don't think you can do it, um, <laughs> I mean, if you don't think you can document all the Dark Souls 1 uh, items, then uh, sure, we won't do it. <laughs> so encumbrance is back on the table, but alignment is off the table. Let's cover that quickly. Well, what does alignment even do in D&D? <laughs> these days, it's, a, it's vestigial these days, isn't it? We don't have no alignment spells anymore and you can't. You know, there's a kind of a detect evil kind of thing going on sort of halfway there, but not really. It's just legacy, right? It's also rubbish because it players play their alignment when it suits their needs. And then <laughs> other than that, they just choose to ignore it. But then if you go to the GM that kind of goes, well, I don't think your KO neutral guy would act in that way. You're not the boss of me, player agency, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, let's just do away with the whole thing. It adds nothing to the game. It serves not not a single purpose in terms of signposting what you should and shouldn't be doing. Mm. It just adds nothing. So it hits the cutting room floor as far as I'm concerned. If it doesn't do anything, kill it. And it just, it doesn't, it's just not suitable for Dark Souls. It just doesn't, that, you know, honestly, who who's good and who's evil in Dark Souls? All right, I, I guess you could say Aldrich, the Devourer of Gods, is, is pretty evil. But, are there, you know, are there... You know, is is Yorn the Giant evil? I don't think he is. I mean, all right, as soon as you enter his chamber, he charges at you. But he was, you know, he was a, a king from descended from giants who who was like asked to lead a kingdom because he was so noble and so good. And has, you know, waited for years for his friends to come and fulfill the oath of killing him and putting him out of his misery, and nobody's been able to. So he's not evil. And I, I just don't think I mean evil, good and evil are pretty complex philosophical precepts at the best of times and i don't think they're i don't think it's ever helpful you know i mean D is getting rid of them anyway because it's yeah. stupid to have 
it's stupid to have all orcs be evil. It's just it's just boring, at, you know, at, at base. The, the idea that you can't speak to one orc and have them have different goals and different ideals and it's just dumb. So, I mean, it doesn't fit Dark Souls and it's nine boxes are not sufficient to really touch how human beings and intelligent creatures relate to each other, I don't think. Yeah, you really need a Myers-Briggs profile or something, didn't you? Really? <laughs> <laughs> Myers-Briggs, the, the, the role-playing game. <laughs> I, 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 I'll write it. That's that's almost tempting as a... As a... I, I just thinking that. Are these orcs ESTJ or are they... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Those goddamn extroverts. <laughs> That'd be the halflings. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is this is more proof, though, that um, by taking... And, and I know your design process was to get hold of that SRD and basically just ring it and get rid of all the adjectives and just take it right back down to its nuts and bolts and then rebuild it up again to see what it could do. And some things fell off the side and some stuff got stacked on top. And, and you've got yourself a pretty tight engine in that in that game, right? And and then what happens then? When you've got did you go engine first, emulation second? Or I imagine that's folded into the process of what stays and goes at every every turn. So the, the creative process that we follow for RPGs and, and every product we make is we start by picturing and, and being able to describe to each other what the emotional re response we want from people who are using the product. So obviously with the RPG, we focus predominantly on what the player experience was, but then we knew that we'd have to come back and, and, and focus on what, the, on, on what the, the GM's experience is. But for that kind of core engine, what is the player's emotional response we want? And what does Dark Souls create in terms of emotional response in players of the video game and uh, and of the board game and of the card game and things like that? So so that was our real sort of starting point. And that helped to shape a lot of the kind of systems that when we looked at the SRD, does that deliver it? Does it come close to it? Does it just need a full rebuild? You kind of do that sort of rough sort through and that gives you that kind of rough cut. And then of course, layered in that because you know the way the creative brain works is, is sometimes a little bit random there's those ideas for these systems that you've had along the way so you're dragging <laughs> them out of your ideas book you're going oh so like the initiative system was an idea i think baz you and i talked about it ages ago didn't we like you know yeah. um, so that was that's been bubbling away and sitting on the ideas list so this this is for uh, you know for everyone who's listening is is an idea is is gold. Write it down. Never lose it because you might not use it there and then. But you you just don't know when you might have a project that you really have the perfect idea already for. So we're sort of like then wish listing all these ideas back onto the table against the framework, and then it goes through that kind of cutting process, which is if you don't add anything, you're gone, and it's quite ruthless at that point in time. And then what you've left with is a fairly battered into shape but quite coherent kind of structure. And that's mm -hmm. when the real work starts, where you really are then playtesting, polishing, and it's that kind of uh, review, uh, revise cycle that just goes on to sort of polish it down. But that's what gets the like the engine into into main shape. So how much um, how much playing of Dark Souls did you guys do then? And, and how do you decide whether something's working right or not? Or if it's just that someone's particularly lucky with Dark Souls, for example... Or you know that that kind of thing because if you're using a D20, fundamentally that's quite swingy. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, how do you how do you put your checks and balances in place to spot when something just happens to be a fortunate set of events or a statistical anomaly? 
so I mean, we we play tested it fairly thoroughly. Quite a lot of that was in house. Then we also had a development pass on it by Alan Barr uh, of Gallant Knight Games, who uh, ran it through a lot of spreadsheets and stuff to basically just make sure everything was was solid there. So I mean, one of the things about Dark Souls is that it's never meant to be fair. So balance was not. You know, we weren't trying to make sure that every encounter, uh, you know, and and the you know the challenge rating system was necessarily fair. A lot of it's based on, like a lot of the challenge, a lot of the challenge ratings might feel weird when people go through them, but a lot of it's based actually on building people towards the end goal. It's quite a lot of stuff which which will give you additional souls that don't necessarily feel earned initially because you're going to need them so much when you hit the big stuff. So that was something that came out of playtesting. The idea that a couple of softer baddies at the start was necessary because otherwise you do have to keep players engaged and otherwise it can become too brutal. And one of the problems with, um, you know, without having a, a digital engine to immediately render the scenario for everything, running players through the same situation over and over again until they get the hang of it is, is actually quite dull at the table. So that's something that came up. So, you know, um, tweaking some of the challenge ratings, things like that came out of the, the playtesting. In terms of making sure everything felt right, I mean, that's... That's a difficult question to answer. It's it's just a case of how did this play for you? How did you feel about this? And you know, realistically, as you say, a D twenty is very swingy, so you can always you always account for that. You make a note of anything that seems absolutely extraordinary. You know, if somebody hammers out thirty odd damage in a single round or something, you might want to take a look at it. But as long as that's as long as that's only happening once, you just kind of go, well, I mean, lucky set of circumstances, you move on. We're quite fortunate at Steamforce is obviously I work a lot with board game designers uh, and developers who are much better at that stuff than I am. Hmm. So they, you know, I go, this, this happened. And they'll go, how many times did that happen? What happened there? And, you know, and then you go, oh, well, it, it happened the once. So yeah, well, don't worry about it. Then. You know, the, that, that kind of thing's fun. That kind of thing forms a story. It's like, you know, it's like the exploding damage in Savage Worlds. Sometimes, you know, every now and then you'll do 40 odd points of damage because you, you know, you roll three sixes and whatever else and everything went your way. So um, like anything, it's, it's a case of feel, knowing, knowing what your end goals are, having a clear idea about, you know, how you want the game to come out and then just, just running it again and again, basically. It's important when you're playtesting to, you know, as, as, as Richard mentions, the, um, you know, people like Alan, our, you know, our other developers who are, you know, expert in board game development. Quantitative kind of testing is is quite theoretical. It's quite spreadsheet driven. It's quite boring in many ways, but in, in, in absolutely essential. So, but it frees up the space that that kind of at the table testing is more qualitative. It's more interpreting how or ter um, how you feel about something, what your overall experience was. And I think one of the things that we try desperately at Steamforge to do is is to not take anything at face value it's always to look one or two layers below so hey there's this mechanic and everyone seems to like it okay cool that's great but why do they like it oh it turns out they like it for this random reason well that's not the desired intent so we need to hoik that that that's an unexpected consequence so what happens if we take that out and we actually retune it to the effect that we did want it to be? Oh, they don't like it as much. Okay, now you've kind of got something you can kind of work with, but it's very feel your way through and it's very much... What people tell you is generally not the full story. 
So you need to kind yeah. of run it many times and try and form the picture of the negative space of what they're not telling you through what they are actually telling you. And that's fine. You know, like English language is an amazingly powerful language, but it is sometimes altogether too easy for us to try and explain a concept to each other by way of example or by or 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 define a problem by way of solution you know oh this particular bad guy uh, wasn't quick enough uh, he's not going to say that what they're saying oh, was, oh it should be speed 40 well okay yeah. why should it be speed 40 well it's not you know it's not fast enough. okay why wasn't it fast enough you know and then you, you dig in oh we never seem to get engaged in combat okay well cool can we not just give it ability that I don't know, shifts it 10 feet at the beginning of the combat and just leave it exactly as is because the numbers tell us that that's balanced. Oh, yeah, that'll probably do it because now this thing's now in combat and, we, and it's not getting kited around. It's it's things like that, that that if you just took your face value, uh, this thing should be speed 40 and you turn it to speed 40, you, you just end up moving away from the original design intent more and more by doing that. And annoyingly, you generally end up drifting everything towards the middle because that's... Mm human nature as well and that's how you end up with average games because everything just normalizes down to the middle and then yeah everything's a bit meh at that point gravity welling it's yeah everything gets sucked into it basically everything just becomes generic what you want you want things to be extreme especially in something like dark souls you want somebody to have a ludicrous number of hit points yeah and and people go oh well this this felt almost impossible to beat well good you know, it's meant to. It's not meant to be fun. Well, no, it is meant to be fun. <laughs> not meant to be easy. Yeah. It comes back to that, um, and I'm sure I've chatted to you guys about this before, but it's that, for me, like, the the fun of, of, a, of a thing that you put in a game is represented by the delta between its weakness and its strength. And the further those two things are apart, the more fun that thing will be. And yet, if I kind of put a a model in front of someone or a monster in front of someone and they went bloody hell he's doing 60 10 damage that seems a lot need to tone that down where are you actually drifting that model's strength down back towards the middle oh he's only got three hit points oh yeah well he probably needs a bit more hit points because he kind of got one shot at that time so let's just give him a few more hit points all right moving that weakness closer towards the middle now we've ended up with a gap that's much smaller than it was before I like the thing that does 60, 10 damage, but only has three hit points. That suddenly is way more fun than your generic average thing that's got 1d10 damage and 50-odd and, and hit points. Oh, okay, cool. It's the same as every other creature in the world, you know, sitting in the middle. So it's getting playtests to enable us to stretch that delta, not, not shrink it. Can we talk about the look of the book now? Please. Yes, please do. <laughs> Um, you, you very generously let us have a, a sneak peek. And I've got to say, what a clean read that is. It is unbelievably well laid out. I mean, well done on the writing, chaps. But your layout guys have yeah. done an absolutely stand-up job. Elliot, Elliot Smith. Oh, compared to the 5e Player's Handbook, which is just a bit of a chore sometimes, and I must have read it a hundred times by now and flicked through it looking for stuff, what have you. Um, I've, I consider myself pretty well versed in 5e. But this book just lays it absolutely crisp, clear, really good use of spacing. Everything's boxed up. You're flicking through it. You've got like a really good pace as you go through. I mean, you know, you have to start skimming the shields, I'll be honest, because there's only so many shields you can what? take. You do. You mean you've not? I only came on this podcast on the express understanding you'd read every single one. <laughs> the shields were too much, man. 
<laughs> did it between us. <laughs> Took it in shifts. But, you know, if that's your takeaway from my massive compliment, you go for it, man. But let's <laughs> stick to the whole point of, like, what an accessible book you've written, which is also we're... is not, is not like, you know, dumbed down in any way at all. It is sleek. When we were looking to strengthen our graphic design team and Guy Elliott, who uh, Dark Souls Layout, when, when I was kind of looking for, for people, we were deliberately looking for people with other experience. And one of the things that Elliot had in spades was, was doing lots of magazine layouts, lots of kind mm. of um, sort of um, communicative layouts, like uh, corporate brochures and, and, and like that kind of infographic style presentation. So that skill and experience that he brought and then was a and, and because he was a fan of Dark Souls and because he got what we were trying to do with the RPG and, and knowing how to lay out things in a way that, it, you know, not every single two page spread is going to be a full blown experience. But bloody hell, there's a lot of two page spreads in that book that are just genuinely an experience when you when you look at them, that it just works as a whole not just words on a page in a certain sort of area. It's it's that whole experience and the way that, you know, he's used the space and the framing and everything like that is, but I think it comes from his magazine layout background. Certainly with the initial things, we work quite closely with him and getting, you know, and but a, a huge amount of this is just Elliot's own, own work and, uh, you know, his own ideas. And he was incredibly patient given the number of times I went back with him going, I think we're going to, we're going to just tweak this damage thing or this needs altering. And, um, but you know, it really is a testament to his art, his craft and what uh, an amazing person he is to work with. As I've been, I've been shouting that everywhere. Cause yeah, it's, as you say, Baz, it's a absolutely beautiful book and it's incredibly, it, it's very, very easy to use. And I think, I do think, there's been a lack of that in some of the very beautiful games that have been out lately, that they they might look great, but they're very difficult to actually work out which text is important and stuff. I think this is not, it's definitely not the case here. You can find everything. It is clearly boxed out. Everything has its own kind of, its own little set area. It's really easy to, to read through and pick up what you're doing. You don't kind of just get lost in a wall of text in the way that you can do sometimes, especially in the 5e uh, player's handbook. That brings us back around to like help for the GM then, doesn't it? Because if the GM can access a book, it's much more likely to get read and played. Yeah, definitely. And it, and I think the way the way the language works as well. I remember um, I don't actually know. I might have met him in person. I don't think I have. But Phil, the uh, the dice mechanic guy. Do you guys know yeah, him? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, and I pinged him um, to kind of hook me up with a link to his blog, where he taken. I think it was the SRD, and he said. This is a system ref doc, and it it must have. It, it just looked at it and went, "It's got so much superfluous cruft in it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to rewrite it as a, like an academic exercise." And I think he um, he took a small section, spent a couple of hours rewriting it, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but but relatively, he said it was a 60% reduction in word count and still retained the same amount of meaning. And 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 he still reckoned he had headroom of words that he could have got out. That was just like a first or second pass. And you like that kind of stuck in my mind. So, you know, I asked him kindly to sort of share that blog with me. And we looked at that and we just realized that when you say we, we had to strip the SRD back, you, you you just got to strip it back. There's just such a lot of crapola in there that you just don't make. I will say Matt shared that with me. And that doc, Phil did a really good job on that. But Matt shared that with me about three weeks before no less than that before the the game was meant to be locked 
<laughs> and I, <laughs> I had a manic panic attack. So yeah, I don't think we managed. I, there's, there's still, I think, in terms of superfluity, in terms of using the SRD, there's still a bit in there, which I think, you know, as over time, hopefully we'll be doing more kind of revisions on, on 5e SRD. I think we've, we've, we've got some ideas there. We're also going to be doing our own system stuff, but we, you know, 5e is not going anywhere. So we will, I think, continue to, to iterate on that and hack it back. But yeah, hopefully we're, we're starting to get somewhere with that. I was just going to say about the, uh, the, the images and layout and stuff like that. I like the empty space. I don't know if they'll, you'll take that as a compliment or not. But no, no, like, like not being unafraid to have gaps and stuff like that, mm. which I think feeds into that our SID cut that you're saying, is to like, just have what you need and want there. And you can actually like, um, like when I was in a band, it was always about like the notes that you don't play as much as the ones that you do mm. and the spaces and stuff like that. And I think that's part of it is um, just what you actually want there and nothing else. It's, it's, you know, like we've talked before, haven't we, about, you know, it's Vihander and, you know, Daniel Foxen sort of saying big books sell. You know, I mean, they do. We're, we're all gamers. We, we like the heft of a good book. Doesn't mean it needs to be filled with wall to wall like the word salad. It, it, it could be filled with awesome artwork laid out really nicely that reads really well. And maybe, you know, the actual content that you need is, is just spread out over, over a page to make your life better as you read it. That's still a 354 on a page book. Great. Such a better experience. So yeah, white white space is is incredibly important. And if people who, who are listening are thinking about doing their own layout, definitely urge people to kind of, you know, use white space to your advantage. Give players, give readers the chance to kind of breathe, understand. That's the extent of what I've got to read in this section. And it almost frames in their mind what they've got to commit to before they start reading that section. Whereas sometimes when it's really dense text, you never know when one section ends and the next one begins and it becomes quite fatiguing. So, yeah, hugely important. Lovely. Well, I'm, I'm conscious of time. I know you've barely been able to get a word in edgeways, gentlemen, so it's been just <laughs> the usual, just me and Baz banging on. But... Uh, <laughs> Are there any extra highlights that we perhaps not mentioned or covered so far? Are there any bits that you're proud of or, or perhaps different features from a regular fantasy heartbreaker of which there's millions already? What 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 other things can you think of that perhaps a little cherries on top of this uh, Dark Souls cake of grim misery and dagger bonfires? Uh, I think I think Matt's initiative system deserves a shout out. Oh yeah, well I, I feel honour bound to mention that this this was a conversation that Baz and I had had. So at least some, if not a majority of the credit, needs to be Baz. Oh, I, I think you could you could pick up my fantasy heartbreaker to see it iterated on really really well. But you've done a fine job later on down the line. <laughs> magnificent King of Dungeons, yes, always always worth a shout out. Quite right. But yeah, I, th I think that works really well, and I think it. So I, I don't need to explain it to you guys then, but for anybody who's listening, basically you, you roll against an initiative DC, which all the creatures have, and you're then either fast or you're slow. What that does, I think, in the Dark Souls situation is it it forces players to talk to each other and work out a strategy based on where they are in the initiative order. So you don't have that thing of people just sitting there going, well, I'm, I'm on 10, so I'm not going for like three turns now. I'll just sit on my phone. No, if you're fast you're going to need to talk to the players who are fast. And if you're slow, you're going to need to talk to the players who are slow. And you're going to need to work out what you're doing, who's spending position to do what, how you're going to approach this thing. And I think 
So I think it's a very good system. Well done, Baz and Matt. So I think that one, <laughs> I, I, I think that really, I think it really works in the context of Dark Souls. While it's a really nice little system, I think it, it, it dovetails particularly nicely in this instance. In, in a way that we're going to use mercilessly for other games that we're writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's nice to have people reading this rule. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's one of those, um, it's a good example of, of just because that's the way 5e does it, doesn't make it the best way. Yeah. And when you look at what 5e is trying to achieve with this initiative system, and um, and it's the actual real world mechanics of actually how does that work? Uh, you know, we all have our own systems of doing initiative at the table. And bearing in mind, this is one of the most, it's almost, it's a clarion call for the game. Roll for initiative and everyone goes, yay, and throws D20s in the air, you know, <laughs> like unloading guns like um, a, a festival. And, and yet there's no actual clear way of actually doing it in an elegant fashion. Like, so, you know, I, this is one of the questions I asked Matt Mercer when I was like, you know, hanging out with him. It's like, how do you do, do initiative? So he has this kind of, in my opinion, pretty clunky way where he goes, right, everyone roll initiative. Right, any 25 plus, 20 to 25, come on in. <laughs> 15 to 20, like, for the love of God, like, how long do you want to drag this thing out for? Whereas I'll go down the process of, right, roll for initiative, and then I'm trying to, I'm, I'm getting like six numbers thrown at me almost instantly. <laughs> And I'm kind of right, okay, so that sounded like Jules, that's a 16, okay, blah, blah, blah. And I'm basically trying to write write them down and, and I'm kind of roughly sorting them as I go through. But that's only two systems. There's like, you guys must have your own systems. Like, how can you have a core system that everyone uses multiple times a session and this hasn't been refined to, to what it needs to do? And what it needs to do is, do the players act before the monsters or after the monsters? That is it. Like in D&D, that is all you really need to know. Are you going before or after the monsters? It doesn't really matter what order you're going in. No one gives no one gives a crap. Who, who cares? The players can work that stuff out. Because how many times do the players go, oh, can I just hold my action until Dave's opened the door? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure, knock yourselves out. I don't care. You know, 5e try to do away with that. Like, why, why on earth would you design out a desire path? This is what players want to do. They want to be smart and clever and they want to work together on stuff. Isn't that the fundamental of the bloody game? Of like working together, so yeah, I, I, I'm quite passionate about initiative because it, <laughs> in a microcosm, it shows what you can do with weak design, and then when you look at that and break it down into what does that need to actually deliver, you can actually get some good design come out of it, and and that that initiative system has, like I say, I remember me and Baz talking about it around his kitchen table four or five years ago, mm-hmm. right, and then and it's just gone through iteration after iteration with that kind of core concept has never actually gone away. What does initiative actually have to do? What do you want as a GM? Going back to what we're saying about how can we now build this game to make the GM feel cool? Well, now the GM hasn't got to juggle six numbers being thrown on randomly or doing some weird bingo caller-esque kind of countdown system. It's like, right, numbers 14, are you fast or slow? All right, well, we're all fast. It's a bit like, I mean, we've got, you know, obviously super inspired by Schwalbe and and, and uh, you know, the Demon Lord. It's a variation of that kind of theme when the direction that he was going in. So, you know, standing on the shoulder of giants, but I just think there's still space in our hobby for good and better design than what we what we have. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the initiative system is a really good example of that, I, I feel. And it's all about the feel with you guys, as we established. Always about the feels. I mean, it, feel. yeah, that's definitely the end. The, the I think there's two axes of design. There's kind of numerical mathed out 
you know, quality, uh, quantitative design. And then there's the field, the qualitative. I, I tend towards the, the qualitative. I think, Matt, probably you, you, you straddle the both, really, because you're quite good at the math stuff. But, and you know, you, you need both to make them work, really. I think there's been definitely a big push away from the kind of statted out, mathed out, thought through design elements in some role-playing games. That's not a bad thing at all. A, a wide spectrum of games is, is great, but because you're putting crunch in, it doesn't make it a bad game. And I do think with some, some of the attacks on D&D come from the idea that people just don't like the amount of maths in the game and it requires maths to deal with it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there was a, an illustration of the, the feel versus maths bit in one of the, the group gaming groups I'm in when one of the guys was talking about how he doesn't like the Year Zero engine from Free League because getting plus two dice, he doesn't know what that means because you're rolling mm. D6s and trying to get every six counts of success. Well, if you got six dice or eight dice, how much better chance have you got of getting a success? And he, did, like, he just couldn't, although I could show him the numbers if he wanted them, he, couldn't, he didn't feel right. You know, he's rolling a big bunch of dice, but he couldn't feel that it felt. Well, so if you give him, I don't know, RuneQuest, he's perfectly happy with that feel because he knows what the number means. Right. Even though, like, in, in each case, you can, like, here's a little table of percentages, so you know exactly what your chance is. It just felt better one way or the other for that person. It is interesting because, I mean, my game, one of my regular gaming groups, we have bounced off the Year Zero system in, in a large way because of feel. Because, we, you know, the mass is... is it's, it's fairly solid. You've got a one in six chance. The more dice you're rolling, the better your chances of rolling success. Yeah. And yet, you, I never feel competent in any of those games because for some reason, rolling a six on a number, X number of D6 is incredibly hard for everybody around that table. And, you know, it's, at one point, Simon Taylor, a friend, rolled, I think, close to 18 dice and we didn't have a single success. Now, obviously, that's a mathematical spike, but the, the overall feel remained that all the way through so even you know i mean that's the way i think statistic you know the statistical element and the the feel element work together in many ways but we never felt competent even in games like coriolis where really you should be feeling quite competent tales from the loop where you're a kid not a problem that's absolutely you kind of expect to feel not great but in games where you're meant to be a badass professional sometimes that system doesn't quite work in the way i think it's meant to the secret with Year Zero games is to um, roll less. It's, it's one, that's my key uh, tip. I've been dead just starting a second podcast, so we'll stop saying. But <laughs> that, that, my, my key tip for people running Year Zero games is don't roll dice as much as you think you should. It's not like playing RuneQuest or, or one of those games where you just roll all the time. Like, just don't make people make observation rolls. Don't make just yeah. give them stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you roll less, and then it's more important, and you know that there's that chance yeah. that you won't succeed, and then it becomes more of a leaning over the table to see what the dice have said kind of moment. But if you, if you if the gym asks you to roll too many times, which would be normal for a different game, you'll encounter too much failure. Is what yeah, we, we played um, an Aliens uh, one-shot, didn't we? And it was fun and, like, obviously, you know, we love the source material and the atmosphere was really good. The GM did a really good job in that, but he, he had a, a, a bit of a predilection for every single corner is making an observation test and you're like, oh, for crying out loud, I'm running out of stress here. And like, this yeah, is, yeah. all I'm doing is looking around the damn corner. All right, it's aliens. I guess the pressure is kind of building up. But, but you know, in, in similar vein, I suppose, is that the same as like Blades in the Dark? You know, I'm running Blades in the Dark for my kind of Tuesday penance group. <laughs> that, I mean, it, it's what offset is basically my carbon offset is my Tuesday group for all the bad things I've done in my life. <laughs> But we're having a, we are having a blast with Blaze in the Dark. I am learning more and more 
that if I don't want to come up with consequences on the fly, don't ask for the damn role in the first place. <laughs> yeah, very, very <laughs> true. And the so game's so, much easier. <laughs> so <laughs> much easier to run at that point. So yeah, I, I assume it's on a similar vein, right? Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> so then, before we do start or continue this second podcast, which no doubt will carry on as I turn record off, <laughs> uh, for, to save our listeners and their gentle ears, uh, where can people find out more about Dark Souls and indeed Steam Forge games? Just go on Twitter and search for uh, Internet Outrage. <laughs> sure, <laughs> then get done. destroyed everything. We'll get like Dungeons and Daleks one day or something if they do that. We will get Dungeons yeah, and Daleks. Yeah, Thanks, Cubicle Seven. We yeah, we owe you a round. Yeah, we will. At the next con, we're all out together. I will buy every single person there with a Cubicle Seven T-shirt a beer. Thank you people, for that. People were more angry about Doctor Who than they were Dark Souls as Five E. Well, it was good, wasn't it? <laughs> really, really took the heat off us. So I love how you've used Cubicle Seven as a shield. Yeah, we were oh, the warmaks. Can't get away from them. Look, Dark Souls, Dark Souls has taught me nothing else. It's, it's, it's about shields, Bas. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah. I think, gentlemen, that will bring us to the end of this particular podcast. No doubt we will have you on again to talk more game design nonsense and hear more about shields. But thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. And thanks out there to all our patrons, supporters, people who like and share the posts and otherwise do us favours. It's thanks to you guys that we can have uh, these wonderful guys on from top game companies to tell us all about their design choices and sparkling new products. Until next time, dear listeners. <laughs> See you later. Good night. <laughs>